Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. Hey, welcome back to The Indispensables and happy 2021. We took a short hiatus at the end of 2020. For our first episode in 2021, I talked with Paul Scharfman. He's an entrepreneur. He's the president of the Specialty Cheese Company and founder of the Rural Revitalization Fund. You know, I'm always talking about the importance of focusing on clear expectations and managing and measuring concrete actions. Paul has an emphasis on managing the human element, tuning into people's emotions and feelings. We had a lively discussion about that. Welcome to The Indispensables. I'm Bruce Tolgan, and I am so pleased to welcome Paul Scharfman to the podcast. Paul is uh, the president of Specialty Cheese Company in Wisconsin, uh, which makes some amazing uh, cheeses, and uh, they have about 260 employees and a manufacturing plant. Uh, Paul is a really unusual individual, in my opinion. Um, I mean, he's Harvard-educated. He's got a BA from Harvard, an MBA from Harvard. And, um, and, and, and there's so much more there than specialty cheese. Uh, I've already learned so much uh, from knowing Paul, and, and, and I haven't known him that long. Um, and uh, so I'm thrilled uh, to let uh, the listeners get to know him. And uh, welcome to The Indispensables, Paul. Well, thank you so much, Bruce. I'm tempted to tell the story of when we met that I was there doing a, a couple of days of seminars for Atalanta, which is a specialty food company that uh, for which you're uh, a main supplier, correct? That's correct. And, um, and, and I had a group of executives, including you in the room. And, and I said something that I say a lot, which is feelings are on the inside, attitudes on the outside. Uh, you can't try to manage other people's feelings, um, but you can manage attitude and your hand shot up and you were like, wait a minute, I beg to differ. Um, and that was the beginning of, uh, although I was standing in front of the room, teaching this group of executives, uh, that was the beginning of, um, our relationship, I hope uh, I can say our friendship, uh, and and where you began to uh, uh, really to teach me about some of my own blind spots. Well, I, that's a, that's entirely accurate. We do have a friendship, and I, if I helped you with blind spots, yippee skippy, that's great. <laughs> and so, can you uh, tell how? Did, you know, I mean, because because you're a business executive, I, I know you play in in some serious business uh, um, ground, and uh, I know you you have uh, worked with people in private equity and the the, the most serious of, of of financially minded business people, uh, and yet I know that your leadership style uh, does have a lot to do with feelings and caring and emotions. Can you say how you came to that? C certainly, Bruce, and I'm, I'm flattered to be here, and I'm glad to glad to hold forth. Uh, so here's the deal: um, I believe that most people don't know what they want, don't know who they are, and yet in business, we frequently say to a subordinate, "Well, tell me what you want, and I'll help you get there." And the, the person is flummoxed. Um, uh, what do I want? Wow. I mean, I'm reminded of uh, Star Wars where Harrison says, I know what I want. And more or less, he wants a million bucks. But that's really not what he wants. We don't know what we want. We go through this world confused about ourselves and confused about our desires. We don't like self-awareness. So with that as a background, you ask, how can you work with your subordinate? How can you negotiate with another person? So one possibility, Bruce, is the one that you said, which is, a, and I'm misquoting you, but to, to be a little bit simplistic, you said what you, what you manage is behaviors. And, and I said, nah, that's where you and I disagreed. Um, behaviors aren't what a person is. 
because we all are aware what I refer to as spaz attacks happen. People have fits and angry and they make mistakes and they get in their own way. And we'd like to think of ourselves as being charitable. We'd like to give them a second chance and maybe a third chance and maybe a fourth chance. But when you do that, you start to say, well, wait a minute. So how am I measuring a person if it's not their behavior? Oh, I know. They weren't really thinking. A person is all about their thoughts. But that's not true. I've had any number of people come up to me and tell me, I'm thinking you're a fool, Paul Scharfman, or worse. And you, you talk to them and they're thinking those thoughts. They are really saying, no, I'm, you are that tyrannical. But then over time, they come down. So, so but, but Paul, just to be clear, so there is thinking and there, and there is behavior and, and it is legitimate to, um, I think, as a leader or even just as a coworker or as a, an interlocutor uh, to have opinions about how people behave, how they speak, uh, their gestures, their words, their actions. Uh, and you might even have, have legitimate uh, point of view about, about what they're thinking. But, but, but I know you're going deeper. That's right. Where I'm going here is a little bit that people aren't their behaviors. They aren't their thoughts. And what, we, what we're left with is something around intentions and feelings. So to work with people, whether it's private equity investors, subordinates, or customers, I start by asking about feelings. And um, I can tell you in a couple of minutes about how I came to this, but I came to recognize that the single most important feeling to engender in yourself and others is safety. Because until you and they feel safe, you're going to have more spaz attacks, you're going to have more anxious behaviors, not premeditated uh, actions. If the if you and the other or the other person feel unsafe, it's in my view, it's very, very difficult to build a productive relationship. So you go into um, a negotiation with a big customer. There's a real risk you're going to lose the business or that there's going to be a disruption in their supply. And the first thing you do, I do, is try to assure them it's not personal. I wish you and the family the best. If we part ways, we'll part ways. We'll all survive. We'll, we want to try to work together to figure this out. We're in this for the long term. How can we work together? It may not work. That's a very different start to a conversation than a more anxious or, or difficult one. So I start by trying to assess what are the feelings in the room. And when I want the best for the other person and they want the best for me, we can then determine, can we work together? How do you do that? Well, let's see if we have the same goal. And the same goals can be in the conversation with a customer. We both want good product and we want both companies to make money. I've been in negotiations where where the customer says, I don't want you to make money. I want the best possible price. If you can't make money, tough. And I go, well, maybe, maybe this this is not going to be a good long-term relationship. Let me take that example that you're giving. Um, so what's going on there? Is that how they think? And that's certainly how they behave and how they're interacting, how they seek to negotiate with you uh, and, and and gain an advantage with you. But I take it um, this this um, your awareness and your emphasis on feelings uh, that there's that, that your assumption there or, or your your learnings are that there's something deeper going on for that person. That's exactly right. So um, I was uh, in a conversation with a customer of a customer's. And this second level customer had come to me and said, why don't we avoid the middleman and work directly? We're going to cut out the middleman. So now right away, as you say, uh, Bruce, the question is what's motivating him? Is the is it benign or is it malicious? Is there, is there some sort of underhanded dealing? What is his motivation? And it turns out his motivation is his organization wants the best possible price no matter what. That's what he was feeling. So then I tried to engage in a conversation about is there anything else that matters to you and your organization than price? Nope, that's it. But that actually wasn't it. Actually, what he wanted was a lower price with the same service. 
the same quality, the same reliability as the middleman was offering. I said, well, if that's true, I can't do it. I could sell you directly, but I can't offer you the product and a lower price and the same reliability and the same service. That's what the intermediary does. And there was a bit of a huff and a stew, but to this day, all three are working together because a little bit, I helped this customer clarify in his own mind, perhaps, he wanted more than was possible. He wanted me not just to make the cheese at a lower price, but he wanted me to also supply all the services of the intermediary. <laughs> right. So, so what was he feeling there? Was he feeling selfish? Um, and, and, and does safety come into this equation? Is, is this an example where you see safety? He was feeling intense pressure from his management. There's got to be a cheaper. It's got you. This is a big deal. This is a big cheese in our organization. Come on, you gotta. We're here. Pennies matter, man. Squeeze. So he was feeling like, but he was trying to do his best job. And when we tried to get clear on all of his goals, not just that one on which the anxious person, this buyer, was focusing, we were able to see grudgingly a path forward. I will tell you, uh, it took some time to resolve. I was quite concerned that we would not be able to continue to work together. But I was confident that I was making the right decision because he wanted more than I could supply. I needed this intermediary to supply the service, the reliability, the quality, and so on and so forth. So if you were, if you had been caught up in the moment and and getting what was your sort of short-term goal there, which is to close the deal, uh, you could have easily found yourself over-promising in a way that ultimately wouldn't have been good for anyone. Everybody there, as the, as the conversation in the short term and then has expanded over the longer term, everybody had motives around trying to do the best they could for their organization. Okay, These, this is business. Um, what do we try to do? We had to get clear on on our goals. So, so let me ask you, what? How did you? Um, uh, you know, maybe some people are are just um, more naturally uh, empathetic uh, and and sympathetic, uh, tuned into you know what's going on on the inside for people. I know that um, you have have um, have some specific uh, stories about what led you. So I am not naturally an introspective, self-aware person. I'm a 66-year-old old man who spent most of his life um, anxious, looking over his shoulder, trying to get ahead, very self-absorbed and not really terribly interested in anybody else's story. Get out of my way. Boy, <laughs> uh, that, uh, you know, I, I know we've only known each other a year or so, but uh, but but I find that hard to imagine because you... Um, you have such a, a, a warm uh, a demeanor. Well, well, thank you. I, I have a neurochemical drip. I don't know what all the chemistry is in my brain, Bruce, but I, I keep getting a little faucet. It's a leaky faucet, and they're dripping cortisol, which keeps me a little bit anxious. And I'm always looking around going, what's wrong? There's something wrong. What's wrong? Scanning the horizon. And if there's somebody who wants to be chitty and chatty and nice and all the rest, I sort of push them out of the way. Nothing personal, buddy, but there's something wrong. I got to go. I got to go. I got to go. That's me. Yeah, well, I do understand that. And, you know, that kind of uh, there, there is um, there is a useful uh, dimension of anxiety. And um, as long as you're not, you know, uh, I, I, I once was told that the right amount of anxiety, you look both ways before you cross the street. You know, if you, if you don't have enough anxiety, you walk out in front of a moving car. If you have too much, you hold on to the telephone pole and never go anywhere. So. How much anxiety is too much anxiety? <laughs> Productivity and pleasure. There's sometimes a tension. So, so you were naturally uh, uh, have the drip of cortisol. You have the natural look over your shoulder, try to get ahead, get out of my way. What, what, what um, led you to be so? What, what, what made you so sensitive? So, uh, close on twenty years ago, I was approached by some friends who are doctors um, who had a practice that included giving wellness advice to their patients. And these docs, many of them were allergy asthma type docs, and they had been telling their patients for some years, you know, 
if you do some fitness type stuff, lose weight, uh, get more fit, your asthma and allergy type symptoms will improve. And they'd actually seen, you know, this works. And they came to me and they said, Paul, you're sort of good at organizing things. Can we make a business of this? So my wife and I worked with these docs and decided, yeah, there was something here. Um, didn't involve pills, didn't involve shots, but we became convinced that people with chronic conditions could improve if their lifestyle improved. So what's lifestyle? Well, it means being a little less sedentary and eating a little less calories. It's not, not terribly difficult to conceptualize. Get a little more slender, get a little more fit. Really? If you do that, your chronic conditions are going to get better? Yep. Inflammation, pain levels, all the rest, it's going to get better. Wow. How do you get people to do it? So that that led to a multi-year effort to understand how can you motivate people to do these things. Eat a little less, be a, be a little more active. How do you motivate people? And um, we started a bit of a company. It was called Getting Better. And the insight that we, we offered was, if you want to help people get better, you have to teach them to enjoy the process of getting better. Deprivation doesn't work. Substitution does. Substituting something fun for the things you're taking away works. How do you teach people to enjoy a healthy lifestyle? Well, there's a whole bunch of tactics. I mean, some of them are almost silly, substituting yogurt for mayonnaise, but most of them are learning to pay attention to different portions of your life. You don't teach people to exercise till it hurts. You teach people to exercise so that they say, ah, that feels good. And you teach people how to enjoy a healthy lifestyle. And that raises a question. How do you people, how do you teach people to enjoy something? And that's all around self-awareness, isn't it? Yeah, and 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 I know you know your uh, one of your points of emphasis there was uh, focusing on chronic illness and obesity, um, and and uh, you say the teaching them the skills to enjoy getting better, which I I love that, um, and so I enjoyment is a skill, right? Wait a minute, what? <laughs> I I thought joy came to you. I thought it was your circumstances that gave you joy. I mean, you can't really be happy if you're just peeling potatoes, can you? Wait, you can? Wait, you can't be happy if you're just sort of laying down. You can't be happy if you're standing there. Wait, you're saying you can, Paul? Yeah, I am. Hold on a minute, man. That would be pretty cool because then you could go through life. There'd be no more boredom. But every, every moment you could find pleasure? Really? And of course, as I try to set it up that way, uh, the popular culture is now full of mentions of this sort of perspective. So we developed a bit of a, of a curriculum. We taught small groups of people how to do this. And we used a technique, Bruce, which is called motivational interviewing. We did it in these small groups. What motivational interviewing uh, assumes, you can Google it. I didn't invent it, goodness knows. It assumes I don't motivate anyone. I help them find their own motivations. So how do you teach people to enjoy anything? You interview them and ask them what, are, what would be the aspects that are pleasurable and what are the ones that are unpleasurable and on balance, which would you rather do? Would you rather focus on the pleasurable ones or the, un, or the not so pleasurable ones? Uh, so I'll give you an example. We had a client in this wellness environment who was quite overweight, big guy, uh, had a number of health issues related to his weight, became diabetic and was threatened to lose his job as a school bus driver because of his diabetes. The, uh, the authorities felt that a diabetic shouldn't be driving a, a school bus. And so the docs told, talked to me, and we did. We were doing all this in a hospital setting, and it came to pass that 
I was able to say to this individual in this small group, so um, you have a choice. You can give up your sugared colas in favor of diet colas, and by calculation, that will so greatly reduce your sugar intake that you will lose the symptoms from diabetes. And I will say so to the docs, and they will say so to the licensing boards, and you will retain your school bus driver. Or you can refuse to switch from cola to diet cola, and your diabetes will remain out of control. And I will say that to the docs, and they will say that to the licensing board, and you will lose your school bus license. So, what are the pros? Are they, what are the cons? Are you willing to switch to diet cola? And therein followed a half an hour conversation, Bruce, in a small group with this individual desperately trying to find enough reasons to enjoy diet cola, to find in it enough pleasurable tastes that he could honestly say he's going to make the switch. And during that time, I found lessons in humanity. This is how we all are. It may be obvious to an outsider what to do. But when you're actually living in the stew of being a human being, that miasma is hard to work through. It's hard to find your own motivations. Yeah. And so, so this is a great uh, case study. And, you know, is this person, you know, grieving over the loss of uh, the soda habit uh, or the, the need to change the soda habit uh, and trying to imagine enjoying the different soda. And, and what I love about this example is it's so, um, it's so concrete uh, and it might sound to someone mundane, but of course for this fellow, it was the key to probably if, if he's able to succeed, it could make a profound difference in his health and also uh, uh, prevent him from losing his livelihood. Right. And here he is every morning, his habits were to get up and go to the local convenience store where he would buy a donut and a cola and meet the guys. And from there he would go off to the bus. Um, but he had a very difficult time imagining buying the donut and a diet cola. And he felt social anxiety. He thought it would be betrayal of his family who were also all obese and his ancestors. He said he could taste the difference. The question became, now that you have, could you enjoy? And he quickly said, yeah, actually I can enjoy the taste of diet soda. It's, it's, it's not that big a deal. Yeah. So now, now, now here, this brings me back to our, the first conversation we ever had, which was not a private conversation, but in a room full of, um, uh, full of people. Um, and, and so my take on this, uh, uh, until I began learning from you might've been something like, okay, but how does this apply to leading and managing people who, you know, who, who work for you, who report to you, who go home after work and talk to their family about their boss and they're talking about you, that this is such a personal thing. And, and, it, and is it your job as somebody's leader, manager, supervisor to be their, you know, their therapist, their dietitian, their best friend? So, so help me understand that because, uh, because what I thought you might say is, oh, no, no, you know, that wouldn't be appropriate. But what I have found you saying is, oh, no, there's a role for that in, in leadership too. When a boss lapses into saying, do it because I told you to do it. In my view, that's the last resort. As a boss, I feel bad. I much prefer the boss to persuade. Now, to persuade the other person, in my view, can't feel bullied. That other person has to feel safe. So in this particular interview, this situation these years back with the cola and diet cola, I think it's directly analogous to every interaction I've had with customers and subordinates for years and years. I can tell you, I can threaten you, but it, that's not an enduring solution. I want to persuade you. So I'm going to start by saying, honestly, the school bus, it's your choice. I will respect you as a human being if you say no, 
I'll give you my opinion about what you should or shouldn't do. But the first thing I want you to feel is this is your decision. And you are a creature of this God's green earth, just as I am. And sometimes we stumble and sometimes we don't. I want you to feel safe and respected as, as you try to work through all the pros and cons. In the work environment, a guy comes in, this is another completely different story, but it's the same, uh, same motivational interviewing safety first feeling. It's um, four o'clock in the afternoon, a guy comes in, he was a ne'er-do-well. Um, he looks like he's considerably older than I am. He's actually considerably younger. Um, he walks to work because he doesn't have a car. Um, and he comes in and he starts to tell me about how there was an incident last night on his shift. And um, the supervisor wouldn't let him go leave the building to get his sandwich. And he came back and there was a fight and it was a water fight, and it was all bad, and it's all the supervisor's fault. And I asked him, so, wow, when did this happen? And he, he told me exactly when. And I said to him, that's great. I'm very glad you told me, because, of course, you know, we have video cameras everywhere in the building. So I can now go look on the video cameras and back up your story. He said, yep. And the next day we looked at the video cameras, and there was no indication of any sort of anything he said. No, no, so we meaning broke. that something different happened or like nothing? Nothing happened. There was no water fight. There was no interaction at all. This was a completely fabricated story he made up in order to try to get his boss in trouble because the boss had said you can't leave the building to go get a sandwich. Okay? But the, 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 the story, the punchline here is that when we brought the guy in, and said, no, look, here's the video. We don't see it. You can look at any video in the company. There's nothing like this. So he said, look, you're a person. We all are. And there are times that we have a spaz attack and we say things that are not true. And we are a company of second chances. People make mistakes, including false accusations. What, what's going on here? What did he say? This guy was just stewing, and he was speechless. And when he finally said, what he finally said, Bruce, was, you just don't see it. There was, there was a big fight right there. But it's not, it, the cameras are everywhere. It's not there. Yeah, it was. I'm done. And he walked out. Wow. So what I feel about that is sorrow. This guy didn't live up to the potential he has. I don't, I don't want to say I feel like I failed, but I do feel sorrow. And did he, did he get angry with you that he felt uh, accused or did he get angry with you that he felt you didn't believe him? He started angry, but then he, he just grew quiet and he finally left in a, what I will describe as a self-justifying huff. And then what was, was that the end of his employment with you? Yep. That was the end of that. Well, well, and what would you have done if he had said, gosh, you know, mea culpa. So I'll give you another, I'll give you an example where that did happen. ABC person at our company uh, was caught falsifying his uh, time records. Um, and the justification was those extra hours he was logging were the times that he was taking cell phone calls from um, from work to his home. And we, we brought him in and said, you know, are these all the facts? It's, it, it would be one thing if you had said to your supervisor, I'm going to add to my time records because of the cell phone calls. But what you did is you said you were at work when you weren't. And you were telling us that the extra time was just because of this cell phone stuff. That's not cool. Yeah, I mean, it's fraud. <laughs> not to put too fine a point on it. <laughs> Either you were here or you weren't here. <laughs> you said you were, just saying. <laughs> so what we, you know, upon, obviously, you know, lots of conversation would developed was he felt used and people are calling him and all this bullshit, self-justifying self stuff. And the question was, look, can you get to the point where you can see that what you're doing is justifying cheating? 
you're making up a story in your own mind, but it really doesn't hold up to a lot of examination, does it? Are you, can you get to the point where you say, yeah, that's that, that, and he did. Right. Can you see it? Right. That, that, and that's, that's a good, that's a good way to put it. Can you see it? And, and what happened? He still works for us doing a great job. Never, never happened again. And did you feel like you have had to forgive him? And, you know, uh, well, first let me ask you that. Did you feel like you had to forgive him or did you feel like you've used the term second chance, third chance? Yeah. So what, at our place, what we start with is when we teach supervisors, we say the first thing you have to do is get to the point where you want to forgive the other person, where you want him to feel safe in this world. You wish him well. Now, tell him what the facts are. You want him to, to do well in this world. There may well be some tough ro- uh, hurdles he's got to overcome, but whatever you're about to say, supervisor, you're not doing it to appease your own anger. You're not acting out of your own urges. So when we, when we brought this individual in with this cheating, time clock cheating, in my own heart, I had gotten to the point where I was beyond my own anger because I was a bit pissed off when I learned about this. Sure. <laughs> um, you know, we've had other places where, oh, gosh, Bruce, there's a time clock up front. And there's a video shining on the time clock. And come to find out, people punch in for another person. Yes. What? How dumb do you think we are? The video can look at your face and read the time clock. You're punching somebody else in. It's on video. It's in. <laughs> right. And that's actually a conspiracy to commit fraud and fraud. Every now and then, and it, 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 my experience, it's it's rare that a person will say, you're right, I did that wrong, I'm really sorry, you're right, I see. And I'm not like any sort of neuro, you know, psych guy, but it's obvious, the guy really is apologetic. You say, if it ever happens again, there is no second chance. And every now and then, it, again, it works, as in the example of uh, I mentioned. So, so, so look, you know, um, somebody listening to this uh, conversation might think, well, gee, Bruce always says that these indispensables are these indispensable go to people are real people, uh, that they're not uh, uh, superheroes. They're not Mother Teresa um, or, or what have you, that 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 they're real life figures. Um, and, and I know you to be, uh, also capable of hard nosed business decisions. And, you know, there's no way you would have built such a, a lucrative, um, business without that. Um, but so how do you, how do you square that circle that, how do you manage to run a business with a bottom line, uh, with clear expectations, with performance metrics, with real accountability, but also with so much heart? Because we're all just folks. I make mistakes. I've done bad things. I've done, I have, and therefore, I bet you have. Okay, since we're all human and we all make mistakes, and sometimes we say the wrong thing, and sometimes we do the wrong thing, how are we going to work together? Can we establish that we want the best for each other? Together or not? Can we create common shared goals? And if we can't, I wish you the best and see you later. Um, As I've mentioned at the top of this conversation, there are customers who want things that I'm unwilling to give. There are customers who want things that I'm unwilling, that I don't do. There are men and women who work for me whose expectations aren't mine. Um, And I say, look, I wish you the best, but this isn't going to work. What I try to strip out of all of those conversations is animus. If I'm pissed off, I'm not ready to open my mouth. And and so that requires self-control, of course. Self-awareness and self-control. And and where I mean, one of the things I'm thinking, you know, listeners might hear this and say, well, sure, but you're the one with the power. Uh, ultimately, uh, you know, you can have a heart, you can give people a second chance, a third chance, but it's your decision when to say, and now you don't get another chance. Now you don't get to work for me anymore. 
Um, and, and from my perspective, you know, people are not volunteering. You're paying them good money and uh, you're, you're a heck of a, a, a good employer and you offer a huge amount to your employees. So, you know, I think people should have to earn um, your earn the money that you pay them and earn the goodwill that you accord them. Uh, but, but um, you know, how, how do you handle this um, when you're in a relationship where you don't have a disproportionate power? Okay. So there's, there's two pieces to that. The first is absolutely. I'm the owner. I'm the president. So to speak, I'm the king. I have the sword. But the hands of the king are the hands of the healer. That creates, I, I don't need anybody to show me all the respect in the world. I, I got it. I own the place. So why would, I, why would I force people when I don't have to? Right. Now, the flip side of that is there are times that I am not in the position of power. And in, in my career, I've, my company's been upside down too many times. I've made a fortune and lost it more times than I can count. When times are tough, I start with the assumption that the other person is just folks also. So I'll dial you back to the year 2004, where our company had just taken on a massive amount of debt, expanded greatly, bought new buildings, and our bank was sold to a new bank. And our market collapsed. We were making a, we were making a product for what was then the low-carb diet. And big, 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 then it collapsed. Here we are, over-leveraged company, suddenly losing money. Um, new plant, shuttered new plant. Um, two weeks of inventory had become eight months of inventory. No cash, negative net worth. You go into... You're called into the new bank by the new bank's president. And the first thing the guy says is, you are now my biggest, worst credit. The second thing he says is, have you ever been personally bankrupt? <gasps> okay. I, I think I'm getting the idea of where the power dynamic is here, sir. <laughs> so you've been on that end of it. And, and how do you handle that relationship? Tell me what, tell me what you need. Uh, and let's see if we can find a way to work together. So what he needed was, was transparent, Right. What he needed was for me to write the ship. And I, I literally took the keys out, put them on the conference room table. And I said, I want to work with you to write the ship. I don't need to make a lot of money. I want to write the ship. But here are the keys. If you think the best thing to do is for, for you guys to take over and liquidate it, you got the control here. Um, and there was quiet in the room. And then there was some deliberation among the bank executives. And the, the, at the end of that, they said, but we're sort of obvious. No banker really wants to take over a company and operate it. So we worked together. Um, I, I took my lickens. Um, uh, frankly, to my surprise, a few years later, they, that bank endorsed uh, another big expansion. And you've been in business uh, for almost 30 years in that business. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, and, um, and tell me, uh, uh, I'm going to ask you about uh, uh, two specific things uh, before I um, uh, bring this in for a landing. One is, um, uh, tell me about uh, the Rural Revitalization Fund. And, well, I, I'm not sure I fully understand. I, I have a feeling that's uh, another mission-driven project of yours. Yeah. So, uh I'm going to take one step back to go one step forward. Uh, over the years, our company has been very fortunate. It, it's grown now for the last 20 years at a at compound annual rate of 15%. So every five years, the company has doubled. Um, and we're fortunate to have, therefore, an increased number of jobs available, but we're in an area with a decreasing population. So the, the question becomes, how do you get workers and a few years ago, we started offering a rideshare programs where our employees drive people from their doorstep to the factory and back. I pay, on average, $13 towards each employee's ride per day. So it's about the equivalent of an hour, a dollar and a half an hour um, is what I pay. And about a third of my workforce 
gets driven back and forth to work. They're, they're absolutely on time. Absenteeism is trivial. No call, no shows are almost eliminated. Um, and we have, I, I don't want to say we have an unlimited number of people, but in our county, there are 30,000 homes, 30,000 households, excuse me, and 32,000 cars. So essentially, there's one car per household. And when dad leaves to go to work, mom's trapped at home. If we go and pick them up, we got a lot of people who are willing to work for us. Okay, that's a clever little thing. Um, we observe that in rural America, there are physical assets that were they located in an urban area would be worth a lot more. So rural assets are undervalued. Rural workforce is considered non-existence, but that's false. The unemployment rate is low, but the employment rate is low, which indicates there's a lot of people who have given up work. They're trapped at home. Rideshare helps. We're going to put in a childcare facility in the same fashion that people trapped at work. So now we turn to rural revitalization, and you ask the question, are there things that should be done that should be done in rural America and not in suburban or urban America? And the answer is yes, there are some industries that are best located in rural areas. Uh, give us an example. So clearly ag and ag processing should be located out where the land is. But it turns out light manufacturing does a really good job in rural areas because there's land. There's uh, ability to sprawl, and there's lower cost assets. Then the, the, the counter argument is, yeah, but there's no people, to which I say, I don't agree. There's plenty of workforce. I can prove it. So this leads to a thought that you could revitalize rural America by building light manufacturing, ag processing, uh, and now with COVID, perhaps telecommuting in rural areas. President Trump came to office uh, one of his insights was rural areas are getting screwed. Um, and that, in my, my view, is, has been true. I don't believe his policy prescriptions actually explained how to fix it. And I come to the table to say, I think I can fix it. I think we can rebuild light manufacturing in rural areas by bringing capital and know-how. Capital there's a lot, there's a, you know, several trillion dollars of available capital in the world. So it becomes know-how. And what you want to do is invest in businesses that are best located in rural areas and use marketing and workforce talent to build them. In other words, they, they have a, there's a strategic advantage for them to be located in a rural area. Yeah. I mean, a, a dumb, obvious example is a cranberry processor. Cranberries are grown in bogs. You don't really want to make a bog in a suburb. You don't, you don't want to transport the fresh cranberries uh, several hours in a bouncy truck to get processed. Um, so there are clearly some things, cranberry processing, that are best done in rural areas. I would say most of ag processing is. 110 years ago, we tried to have stockyards in Chicago and grow the cattle out in the plains. That didn't work out. Stockyards went away. So ag and ag processing belong in rural areas. I would say much of light manufacturing belongs in rural areas. But what you got to bring to it is the ability to develop a workforce, apply marketing, and, and uh, bring the money to it. Um, I can, uh, I'm comfortable that those are feasible strategies along a path towards rural revitalization where the goal is to make rural areas vibrant, and then housing and schools and broadband will follow. Our company invests in housing for its employees. We sponsor the local Reeseville Art and Music Fest, Bruce. You know, it's 12 miles to the nearest supermarket. Reeseville is, is building because of the microeconomics of a successful little enterprise. I think you could replicate that across broad swaths of rural America. And the connection to the need to provide um, uh, transportation to work is that sort of an illustration of the disconnect between uh, the business that makes sense to have there and the the need to get people to work who can't get there otherwise. Yeah, so it, it falls under the under the strategy of workforce development. 
if you if you run a business at rural America where you say this is the time you have to be here, you have three strikes and you're out, then pretty quickly you're not going to have a workforce because in rural America, if mom has a childcare issue, she doesn't have a lot of alternatives. If there's a car screw up, if there's if there's dot dot dot, you need to have a workforce development strategy that recognizes your people are people. And you have to flex to their needs. The employees are as much a stakeholder as the financiers, the customers, and so on. So this is another example of a of a, a humanistic point of view that lines up with the best interests of the business. I think so. To win-win. We're a little company trying to do that where if we don't create a win-win, it won't be an enduring success. Uh, we're, on, we're expanding our factory right now. We're about doubling it. And the walls that we put up have a shelf life of 50 years. The roof, is, it's all a 50-year building. A lot of cement, Bruce. Okay, so tell me about your 50-year workforce plan. Remember, declining in, in local uh, uh, population. I, I think we'd best treat our people pretty well, Bruce, <laughs> or it's going to be an empty building. <laughs> Total work there. And 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 that's got to um, also um, be at least part of your faith that giving people second and third chances um, is necessary. And I mean, it, it may well be the right thing to do. It's certainly a humanistic point of view. Uh, but again, it, it, it lines up with the availability of talent, and um, and that's got to be part of the equation. Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we when in doubt, we want to give the employee what, 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 what they want. We can't do that for many, many things. Look, what you want is it, you want more time off. Okay, so who's going to do the work? Well, my teammates will. Have you asked them about that? Well, they don't want me to. Well, then why should I want you to? <laughs> I mean, just because you want it doesn't mean you get it. But the tie goes to the runner. We try. Um, look, I don't want to be working Saturdays. Um, okay, I don't blame you. But the work's got to get done. So how are we going to work together? Well, could I have every other Saturday off and pay, you know, Albert over there? He wants to, whatever. We, we try to find a solution. You try to find a solution and maybe, uh, uh, and of course, the real uh, uh, goose that lays the golden egg on this question would be if you can figure out how to uh, 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 help them develop the skills to enjoy working on Saturday. And, and that, that is the heart of the, uh, of the conversation. You're right to bring it back. Here are the benefits of working on Saturday. There's some financial benefit for you. There's some team benefit. There's some teammate benefit. There's part of being a part of a winning team benefit. Here are all the things that are in favor of it. Now, what's the, on the other side? Well, you want to see your kid. Okay, how can we do it so you can see your kid at another time? Can you frame the conversation so there's a win-win available? Well, listen, I think the hardest thing about uh, managing people is that they're people. And the hardest thing about working with people and relying on people is that they're people. And, um, you know, I'm always trying to thread that needle. And uh, one of the things I've so enjoyed about getting to know you and, and learn from your perspective is um, you uh, have such a humanistic uh, point of view about about this. And, and you've actually put your money where your mouth is. I, boy, I knew, I mean, I knew you were for real as soon as I met you, but I, but, but I, I was blown away when I learned about um, your program to get people transportation to work and your willingness as an employer uh, to take that on. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted, I wanted childcare. Um, and I would prefer not to spend 5 million bucks building a childcare facility next to the factory so how about we give the, the employee and their kid a ride to the factory, and then from the factory we have a shuttle bus 10 miles up to the YMCA in Beaver Dam. YMCA is the country's largest provider of childcare. Wow, they're, they're loving it. Um, Bruce, why don't other companies do this? I, I have a theory, and I imagine you do, 
But to me, it's just like problem solution. Um, I need workers. I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to treat them like people and try to answer their needs as well as my needs. Duh, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I think I think you're I think you're absolutely right. And by the way, I love uh, your reference to the YMCA. They've been uh, a client of ours for many years, and I'm a big believer in the movement, and um, uh, as they call it, the movement. And uh, um, but you know, I th- look. I think um, a lot of employers say to me, you know, I can't find people. I can't keep them motivated. They can't get to work on time, um, and they don't stay. And then in the next breath, they tell me. Oh, well, you know, they have these outrageous uh, demands or requests or needs. And, um, and you know, so I, I, I am, uh, you know, my big insight there is, well, yeah, they keep telling you what they need, telling you what they want. <laughs> right. <laughs> but Bruce, they're wrong. What do you mean they're wrong? They're talking about what they need. Oh, no, they can't want that. <laughs> Yeah. And, and, and to your point uh, earlier, uh, you know, sometimes people think they know what they want or they think they know what they need. And really what's going on is uh, something deeper inside that's um, that's confounding them. Yeah. Um, so so a- as we uh, wrap up uh, time wise here, um, let me ask you, um, somebody uh uh, here's this interview or they hear about you or especially if they look into all the things you've done and they, they, they uh, find out more about you and they say, how do I get to be Paul Scharfman? Um, what's your advice uh, to somebody who's, who's not there yet and who wants to learn from you, wants to emulate you, wants to be more like you? Somebody wanted a, a little piece of advice. Um, I'd say learn from my mistakes my early years, I was dedicated to the short term. Make it, make it fast, and sell it. Get out. Go, 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 go. What I have found works best is perseverance. Put one foot in front of the other. Think about this as a long-term endeavor. Focus on hitting a little single, not the home runs, brick by brick, day by day. And the biggest task you have is to find a way to enjoy each and every day, despite all of the stress that comes with it. Um, don't be in business in order to get out of business. Be in business to stay in business. Paul Scharfman, president, specialty cheese company, founder of the Rural Revitalization Fund. Uh, thank you so much for being a guest on The Indispensables. Thank you for having me, Bruce. In our next episode, I'll talk with Selena Burganio. Get this, she's the zookeeper at the Franklin Park Zoo in Dorchester, Massachusetts. A zookeeper. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.